welcome to Outside Inside Radio. I'm your host, Kathy Foley-Meyer. Today, I'm really happy to be here with Alberto Lule, an artist and student. Welcome to the show, Alberto. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, I just wanted to give our audience a heads up that this episode will have a lot of description because we're going to be talking about Berto's visual art and because it's radio. So please bear with me because Berto has done some really compelling work. We'll share his site on our social media so you can check it out for yourself. And he's worked in a variety of mediums as a visual artist. Berto, can you tell me a little bit about your journey to becoming an artist? Sure, sure, yeah. And you, yeah, you can just call me Berto. My full name's Alberto, but you can call me Berto. But I guess you can say that I started really studying art after I paroled from prison. I identify as being formally incarcerated. I was incarcerated about 14 years from 2002 to 2016. And in 2016, I enrolled in a community college, Santa Barbara Community College, maybe like literally like a week after getting out. It was a very, uh, <laughs> it was a very frightening experience. You know, I was almost 40 years old and wow. trying to go back to college. And that campus was scarier than some of the prisons I was at. <laughs> <laughs> Put it that way. When you're a little older and you're trying to return to college and you see all these kids with their entire future ahead of them, it could be a little intimidating. Right. Yeah, I've been there, believe it or not. But yeah. <laughs> I went back to college, really studied a lot and decided to major in art. I also have a AA in art history because I really love art history as well. And eventually I transferred to uh, UCLA. I got accepted to their program at UCLA. Mm -hmm. And last year, I graduated from UCLA with my BFA, a Bachelor in Fine Arts. Congrats. And I started my MFA, a Master in Fine Arts at UC Irvine. And I'm starting my second year at the UC Irvine Claire Trevor School of the Arts. And it's a three-year program, so I'm really excited. Yeah. I'm sitting here in my in my studio. The studio is gigantic. This is, like, very empowering. Compared to the prison cell I've been living in for so long, it's, it's indescribable. The feeling that, that you get when you accomplish something that maybe you felt was unobtainable. Right. Yeah. It's so powerful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> So how would you describe your creative process? I mean, what inspires you to make art? A lot of the artwork I do now, I guess, because there was a time, I think, where a lot of the things that I do or a lot of the things that I make, I, I'm not sure if I ever consider them to be artworks. But yeah, a lot of the a lot of the artwork that I make is very rooted in mass incarceration, mm -hmm. the prison industrial complex, but also the power of redemption, the belief in second chances, the belief in reinventing yourself and applying a lot of the experiences, turning them into, I guess, positive energy, into creativity. A lot of the creativity I feel that I had when I was in prison, I still use it or I still have it. I still, uh, still present it and display it, but as art now. Right. And uh, we can get into that yeah. when we talk about some of the art pieces. Yeah. So I went through your site chronologically, and I noticed your early work is reflective of being inside. There's one piece where there are views of a guard tower. There's another with a man with a kerchief mask sitting inside a cell. And your renderings are kind of tightly controlled and realistic and very solemn. Or they're like the piece, My Mom and Uncle's Green Cards, where you are using items from real life in an assemblage. So I was curious about the piece Infectious Monster Medium, which is a mixed media assemblage of wood, PVC pipe, foam, and some other materials that feature some bright pink color at the base. Is there a significance for you for the bright pink color? 
I'm not sure if there's a direct significance. I love colors and pink is a very bright color. I don't know for me, <laughs> I guess it's a very innocent color. I, I didn't see a lot of that in a lot of the places where I was in. I didn't see a lot of that color. Right. Yeah. It really stands out in like Steps of the Magi and Infectious. What is Infectious Monster Medium about? It's a sculpture that was getting put together little by little. And as I started just assembling these very opposite kind of like materials with each other, I started applying this imagery of some kind of creature and it's sitting on these sawhorses. And I started- Yeah, it also looks it's growing. It, it looks like it's growing too. I started drilling holes into the, the plexiglass and I was shoving these tree branches in it. Yeah, they look like they're almost like sprouting out of these very man-made materials. Right. It kind of feels like it would be a metaphor for things growing out of something where it's not assumed that something will grow. Right. So you think about the, the saying, the rose that grew out of concrete, mm -hmm. right? And it's, it's kind of like these special things can happen in places where you least expect them, which I a lot of times in prison, it happens that way. Right. There was a moment while I was in prison, I was in a place in prison called administrative segregation. And a lot of people call it the hole where they kind of, it's kind of like a prison within the prison where they send, you know, people that have been misbehaving for a while to cool off, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even in prison, I was still kind of like a knucklehead, you know, I was, I was getting into some trouble in prison. And I remember in prison, there was an old timer there, right? An OG. He was in the hole and he knew me. He knew, he knew who I was because at one point I was actually helping him get his GED. So I was almost like a de facto tutor for some of the inmates on the yard because at that time I had gotten college courses on the yard. Not not every prison yard offers college courses. I was fortunate enough to be at a prison where they were having college courses. Uh -huh. At first, I kind of like took it out of my cell. And then I started realizing that I was kind of good at it. I, I understood the work. It wasn't hard for me. And I really liked it. And eventually it got to the point where people were approaching me on the yard asking me if I was the one that helped people <laughs> with their math, <laughs> which is it's comical when I think about it, because those ain't the type of questions you get asked while you're in prison, right? Everybody's always trying to check each other and see how tough they are. Right. You know, I was trying to prove they're the biggest gangster ever, right? Everyone wants to be, everyone wants to be gangster number one. So, you know, they'd approach me in a very yeah. secretive way and they'd be like, hey, uh, are you the one that helps people with their English essay? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can, I can help you, right? And I started to get known as kind of like this guy that could help you get your GD or help you pass your class or help you with your homework. And, you know, it was kind of funny because there was like a little group of us and we'd kind of be sitting there having a study session in the prison yard. <laughs> So it really changed my entire perspective about the potential of education because nobody really make fun of us. Nobody would like see that as a, as something weak. You know, people started to really take that seriously and nobody, nobody would see that as like, like a negative thing in prison. Everyone was kind of seeing it as, as a way that maybe they can escape as well. Because for me, it was always about trying to not be in the cell, trying to not be in there and not be in that state of mind where you're just constantly thinking of bad, right? Of right. How are you going to be the gangster number one? Thinking of ways of how to do that. Mm -hmm. It really made kind of like the walls of the prison disappear at times. Right. But I remember there's this OG saw me end up back in the hole, right? Even though I'm, I'm taking these college classes and I'm really trying to like change my entire perspective, I'm still kind of a a bad guy. I'm like, I'm beating people up. I'm making like prison wine. I'm doing, I'm doing just like really unproductive things. But when, when, when he sees me go back there, he's like, can I ask you something? Cause like every now and then they would give us yard every 72 hours. You can go out to the yard in, in the hole, but it's like just the dog kennel. And really you just walk back and forth with whoever you're on the yard with, with they only let people out three cells at a time. So you, you only interact with, you know, at most maybe like eight other people. Right. But we're having like this conversation 
in and he's like, can I ask you a serious question? I'm like, yeah, sure. He's like, what are you doing here? Like, why are you here? <laughs> and you know that I, I kind of took it as like an insult. You know, what do you, I'm like, what do you mean? What am I doing here? You know what? You know what the business is. You know, I'm I'm, I'm doing my thing. He's like, no, no. I just need you to just really ask yourself, like, what what are you doing here? And then he asked me, how much time do you have left? I'm like, and at that time, I think I had like 12 years left. Hmm. But tell me, I got about 12 years left. He's like, you want to know how much time I have left? I was like, well, yeah. You know, <laughs> he goes, I have, I have 80 years left and I'm 45 years old. He's like, I'm not, not going to get out. Right. And he says, my, my, my cellmate, he's got life in prison. He's never going to get out. The other two guys right there on the yard, one of them has a triple life sentence. The other one was struck out. They're not leaving. So it's like, right. you know, then he's like, so I'm seriously asking you, like, what are you doing here? You may think that 12 years is a lot of time. And it really is. It's a lot of time. But compared to some of these sentences that they're giving some people these days, it's mm -hmm. really not a lot. And he tells me you have the potential to get out and actually do something. So it really, it really like got to that point where I needed somebody that behaved like me, that looked like me, that acted like me to tell me you're not me. Right. You have the ability, you have the chance to actually do something else. And then he told me, so go and do it. You still have that opportunity. Like you, you saw, you saw how deep it can get. It can get even worse than this. I mean, look around and ask yourself, like, do you really want this? Yeah, you know? He was seeing you. And so like after that conversation, things really changed. It really took somebody with like no hope. Yeah. Yeah. A really human, basic human connection there. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of the artwork that I make is based on these situations where like very intense, passionate kind of moment, a very intimate moment between men. And a lot of the artwork is based on that, on those things. Yeah. In that case, I want to ask you about the Prison Ready Made series. On your site, you've explained that you were taking objects created within the prison space. As you put it, some are created for a function for the incarcerated person, while others serve a function for the institution. There's one piece that's a mannequin who is dressed in what looks like a denim work shirt with a red rolled up pants that have the word prisoner on the right leg. Yeah. And he's carrying what looks like a mug in one hand yeah. and a white plastic bag with something inside. Can you talk a little bit more about these? Because it's really striking. Right. So the mannequin, I call him Manny. Right. So there's like four different mannequins now. Right? Oh, I have okay. uh, a series of these mannequins that are advertising what I would say is prison labor. What Manny is wearing in, in the picture that you're describing, he's wearing a, an entire kind of like uniform that they give to prisoners. Okay. When you get to prison, they give you a jacket. They give you a couple of pairs of pants. All of uh, all those objects they give you say CDC prisoner on them. They give you some work boots. They give you, you know, they dress you. They provide for you. And all of the objects that they provide for you are are actually made by other prisoners. There is an entity, I would say, of the prison industrial complex that goes by Cal PIA. Mm -hmm. And Cal PIA provides jobs for prisoners. You get a job at Cal PIA, you do your work, and a lot of the work requires you creating clothing for other prisoners. Um, He's holding a, a mug, and when you're in prison, you can go to a commissary and in the commissary, you can buy a coffee mug. The coffee mug is what he's holding. It's an actual, it's a coffee mug from the prison. And then in his other hand, he has a white bag. And his other hand, uh, the white bag is the laundry bag that Got you it. get. You also get a laundry bag, which has your uh, underwear and your socks in it. And you get all this issued to you. You don't get issued a coffee mug, though. You have to buy that with your own money. You do get issued a, a cup, but it's not that cup. But you do get issued a cup as well. So what's he holding? His hand. It's a laundry bag. Okay, so it's kind of like, kind of like, I guess, the everyday 
objects that I guess you have. You don't own them because the owners appear on the clothing of who owns those clothes. You have to give them back actually when you leave. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, you don't get to leave with the clothes on. Uh, and, do the, and do the pants actually say prisoner or were you just labeling? Yeah, the pants, no, the pants say CDC prisoner on them. Okay. Because what's yeah. interesting about Manny is that he kind of looks like he belongs on a runway. Right. So I'm glad that you're bringing that up because what I'm trying to touch on when I create these mannequins wearing these clothing is kind of overlap mm-hmm. or intersectionality between retail and correctional facilities, which I think are not that far apart. You know, when people see them, mm-hmm. when people see the mannequins, they really, they, I mean, there's something appealing about it. And my whole thing, my question would be like, why is it appealing? Right. Why do you find it appealing? And that's kind of like some of the questions that I would like sometimes for viewers to ask themselves. Like, why am I liking this? Why is it so attractive? Right. Exactly. There is a definite connection thread between by fashion and your mannequin actually represents. It was almost like you were commenting on the commodification of prison life. There's a trend in popular culture to want to explore what life is like behind bars. And it was almost like a trend. And I sort of feel like your mannequin kind of comments on that trend. They treat it differently. You know, the realistic parts of it don't always obviously come through because they're imagining what it's like in most cases. And even if they're in touch with people who know what it's like, they have to change it to make it palatable for mass consumption. So it's not going to be the real. And I felt like you were commenting on that fashion or commodification of being on the inside. Right. Yeah, yeah. And the the commodification of the prisoner is not too far off from the commodification of ourselves now, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about critical theories or philosophers from the past, we can say Michel Foucault, who's a very outspoken person about what he calls biopower, disciplinary societies, societies in which the citizens have figured out how to discipline themselves. Right. And, you know, and this was like in the 60s, constant surveillance, right? We we kind of like pay for it now. We go and we buy, Mm -hmm. ring uh, the doorbell ringers but they have like a camera on them so we we kind of like perpetuate this and it's the reason why Foucault called this a disciplinary society because we've come to the the point where we are disciplining ourselves which I don't know if it's a good thing yeah and I think we give up a lot of our privacy when we do that all right and it's for the sake of what if you know and this is one of the things that happened, I think, during, like, say, post 9-11. I was actually still, I was still out, but, and I do remember seeing the tragic events of 9-11. But after 9-11 came out with the Patriot Act, everyone kind of signed on to it immediately because of how traumatic the event was. It was, it was very easy to kind of, like, fall in line with that sensibility that we must put up more cameras. We must mm-hmm. put up more surveillance because we don't want another 9-11 to happen. And I'm not really sure, like, like how productive that was or how, how beneficial it really was other than being able to just see things. Yeah, I, it's, we discipline ourselves by observing each other all the time and also by displaying ourselves in a certain way. That maybe, you know, a lot of times I don't want to see certain things. <laughs> These ages when everyone's like on TikTok now, it's like there's so much of everything now. Right, yeah. It's almost overwhelming and overstimulating. Overstimulating, yeah. 
And it comes to the point where the human being as a commodity, Thank I you. think, that's... has reached new levels. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what the work is is pointing mm-hmm. towards. So to counter that, though, to counter these items that are created by prisoners, I counter that with other mm-hmm. items created by prisoners that I also display. And these were kind of items that I learned how to make that had some kind of function. Unfortunately, disappointingly, sadly, right. one of the first things that I learned how to make was a weapon. So you get to prison ready-made number one, which is a prison shank which is made from like a pen and a sharpened a small sharpened piece of metal that's one of the first things you get very creative about is how you're going to protect yourself in these spaces but there's other objects that kind of like highlight some of the creativity that happens when you really need something i think one of one of my favorite ones is the lighter right it, it was like a pencil a pen so it's like a pencil okay, how does that work Where's the spark come from? So attached to the end of the pencil is a bent piece of paper clip and a razor blade from uh, shaving. They're kind of shaped to the size where you can plug it into electrical socket. Attached to these two items to the razor blade is a electrical wire. Mm-hmm. And then if you touch the electrical wire mm-hmm. to the pencil lead, mm-hmm. it'll create a spark from the from the electricity in the wall socket. And I would usually use like a Q-tip or toilet paper. And if you create a good enough spark, it'll light the toilet paper on fire and you'll have a flame. Now, a lot of times people were doing that just so they can smoke cigarettes. Mm-hmm. But- <laughs> But it has more functions than that. Like I, I was a tinker. I like to, I like to like make things. Really. And sometimes they were just like really stupid little sculptures or something. But you can also like kind of bend hard plastic with it. Uh, you could really like clean up like something that you've sewn by kind mm-hmm. of like lighting the shredded ends. So there's like a lot of like small little functions that you would need a lighter for. And a lot of people feel like, oh, well, you're in prison. You don't need any fire. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, even within prison, like humans need fire. I was just gonna say to light a cigarette. And uh, other items like include like clotheslines. Mm-hmm. Some people don't like to have their clothes washed with other inmates' clothes because they all kind of wash them all together in these huge kind of like uh, washing machines. Mm-hmm. Me personally, I didn't really, I wasn't very too trusting of whose drawers my drawers were being washed with. So I learned to kind of like wash my clothes in my sink. Right. Okay. And I learned how to make clotheslines so that I can dry my clothes when they're ready to be dried. It'd be comical, you know, for me, like, on a Sunday afternoon in prison, if you walk around and look into people's cells, all you see was laundry hanging everywhere because you know, nobody would nobody would send their clothes to get washed because you just don't know whose boxer shorts are being washed with. Some people would, though. Some people still would, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, no judgments, but I just personally, I didn't. There's all these small little functions that you need to live more comfortably in prison. And you usually have to make those. They don't sell clotheslines in the commissary. They don't sell lighters. Right. Well, probably because you could do other things with them that maybe they don't want you to do. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. A lot of those items, I think, are what would be considered contraband. Right. But at the same time, I do feel they also kind of like yeah. uh, illustrate the creativity that prisoners have to resort to in order to kind of like simulate how you live out here. Yeah. Because you go, you go into these spaces being used to living a certain way. Exactly. On the other. And then they just throw you into a cell and expect you to rough it out. But like, I'm, you know, you're going to rough it out for 10 years. Right. You start to develop ways to how to make that time go a little smoother, a little calmer. Uh, you know, and the, the correctional officers, they know, like they don't go in there and take all your clotheslines down because uh, they know. They know like, a, you know, a calm prisoner is a not violent prisoner. <laughs> um, right. 
Right. And it speaks to the adaptability of the human mind. It's, you're going to credit your space to make it more human for you. So. Like a lot of those items now that, you know, they're not really considered art in prison. No. When I, when I first saw a lighter, I looked at, at my cellmate that had produced it, you know, so we could use it. I was like, dude, this is art. <laughs> and he's like, shut up. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Right, exactly. But it is. So tell me about the Common Prison Ditto series, because you've got these really nicely, finely rendered pieces, drawings on things like Pyrus, which is an ancient paper. So that one really struck me. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I like to choose like kind of like brown papers or papers of color, <laughs> uh, like papyrus, Egyptian papyrus. Right, or right. There's, a, there's this really nice paper that's still being handmade from Mexico, from mm -hmm. a tree called the mate, an amate tree. And they still make paper out of it the way they used to make it pre-Columbian times. And I really, I really like these kinds of like really handmade paper is never white. Right, exactly. It's always, it's always like, a, like, you know, it's usually the color of a tree. It's, mm -hmm. it's kind of brown. Yeah, they have to bleach it to get it to be white though. Yeah. Yeah. So I really like using these handmade papers. And oh, one thing I haven't shared is that I am a tattoo artist as well. I learned to tattoo while I was in prison. And I learned, to I learned how to make tattoo machines, which is one of the ready-mates that's on display. But uh, uh, the only thing that I paroled with when I left the prison was this big collection of tattoo stencils that, that I, you know, kind of collected and made over time. Right. I felt it was like the kind of like maybe even the only thing that besides the knowledge I had in my head that, that I wanted to take with me when I, when I, when I got out. Exactly. I noticed that. Yeah. And then while I was at UCLA, I was like, I want to make a drawing of the stencils, but I don't want to make just like a pencil drawing of a collection of stencils. Mm -hmm. I was really trying to figure out how can I do that. Right. And so I started using the stencils the way that you would use it when you when you make a tattoo, you got to apply the stencil on the skin of a client and then and then you'll be able to see the stencil and you can follow the lines and create the tattoo. So then I thought, why don't I just do that but on the paper? And really like overlapping stencils being re repeated over and over and over again. Because uh, the, the, the reason why they're called common prison dittos is because they're very common. Right. A lot of the imagery that a lot of the clients of mine would get, would they'd be kind of like very, it'd be very common. It'd be very, uh, uh, I guess someone asked for it already. Right. A lot of times we think like when we want a tattoo, a lot of times we think like that we have this super original idea <laughs> and uh, it's usually not that way. You usually want a tattoo that you saw on somebody that you really, that you were really impressed with. So sometimes, you know, I would meet a new guy. They'd want to find out, they'd want to know who the guy that was doing the tattoos was. And I would meet a lot of the new guys, you know, and they'd approach me and, and they start telling me their ideas. Right. They're like, oh yeah, I want an angel right here. And then I want, I want a demon right here. And they're going to, they want, they're fighting each right. other. Sure fighting <laughs> yeah. i'm like okay well you know in my mind i was like okay you know we've done this before and i kind of had these stencils kind of like my portfolio and i would divide the stencils into like four or five different categories one of them which happened to be the good and evil folder and in there i would have like imagery of angels and demons and like religious stuff and you know so i would hand them the <laughs> the envelope they'd open it and they're like oh man it's like you're reading my mind like yeah this is exactly what i'm thinking of <laughs> Um, <laughs> so yeah, like your mind and everyone else's mind who wants this. 
Yeah, yeah. So a lot, a lot of, a lot of times, I think that we we think that we are onto like an original idea, but more than likely, you probably saw it somewhere. And that's how saturated I feel society is with imagery. Is that we've kind of become a society of what uh, I guess to to go back to the philosophers, what John Baudrillard called simulation and simulacra, where like a uh, copies with no originals, a copy of a copy of a copy yeah. with mm-hmm. no original is a simulacrum right exactly uh, and i think we're kind of like almost living in a society where the society is a copy of a previous society and that original society has nowhere to be found anymore or well, that's just to mm-hmm. get like a little deep because it gets really crazy sometimes no it's true i feel I, we are i feel like it's true i agree we're living in a society where we prefer the simulacra. We prefer it. Yeah. If we were to be shown reality, like the real reality, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know it. We wouldn't, we wouldn't recognize it. We would not recognize. Probably be afraid of it. Yes. We'd probably be like, no, get that away from me. That's not. That's not real. That's not. That's that can't be real. I think we are afraid of it. I think we are afraid of it. So I wanted to ask you about the alien versus prisoner piece. This one struck me as a really powerful critique of the othering that our society does with certain groups of people. In your dental text, you've got a rendering of a human being as something other than human in a way. Yeah. So alien versus prisoner, which is going to be on display next week at uh, the New White Biennial, which is at UCLA. Awesome. The show is the immigration and diaspora, and it's really focusing on on immigration and cultural movements, like when a culture moves from one place to another. Mm-hmm. And it's based on writings of William Said, who really focuses on on immigration and what mm-hmm. it is to be from somewhere but living somewhere else, mm-hmm. especially where that somewhere else is not tolerant to where you from but the the artwork is kind of like this juxtaposition Mm -hmm. comparison between my prison issued identification card which i was able to parole with right you're not supposed to but uh, you know i hit it really well and my father's immigration card on his immigration card it says resident alien on it and has this picture and he has a number and he has like there's all these like chains of data locked into the identification itself like a barcode and a fingerprint Mm -hmm. like there's all these kind of forms of identification and all of these forms part of the surveillance the surveillance aspect comes in on it and then when you compare to my id card it's not much different like Mm -hmm. my identification card has a cdc number it has my fingerprint it has my commissary number it has a barcode uh so you know bar when we're talking about commodification like uh, i feel like the barcode is kind of like the language yes. of commodities. Yes. So why do I have one? <laughs> or why, why does my immigrant father have, have a barcode? And surveillance. And I feel like the system our society has developed, I feel that some of these systems by default designate identity for us. I feel that sometimes the media does a good job of convincing us that we're completely free, that we can be whoever we want in this life. But the systems they use don't really do that. They kind of designate you as a certain person. And a lot of times they uh, they, they do what's called othering, right? They other you. They other you into a form where you're just a number. You're just a barcode. Right. Anything they need is in the fingerprint. Exactly. Right. Both of those designations push against the human in a particular kind of way. They're dehumanizing and they're inhumanizing, you know. On on the, on the card, it says resident alien, but it's kind of like an oxymoron because it's not... Are you a resident or are you an alien or what you're kind of like in this in-between? Right. And a lot of times when you're in the in-between, things can happen. Right, yeah. Things can happen to you where because you're living in these spaces that are in-between kind of like the laws. Right. 
that's where I think a lot of times, especially immigrants, they get taken advantage of. Right, exactly. Right. Those spaces are abyssal spaces and fall into an abyss. Right, because the laws don't apply to immigrants the way that they apply to citizens, but then they have their human rights. So there's all these things like going on. And in between all that, people get lost. Some of the children that were uh, taken away not too long ago haven't been fully accounted for. Exactly. And they may never be reunited with their parents. Yeah. Because in our system, we actually don't know where their parents are. And just the word alien, same word designates something that is not human, not actually from planet Earth. You know, it's the same technology. And I don't think that that's accidental. So I want to ask you one, a question about your materials, particularly in your later work, which is more abstract. So why do you like to use forensic fingerprint powder as opposed to say some other form of material to do the same thing? Yeah. So I got into this kind of like this idea that I wanted to use tools that have been used on me. You know, fingerprint powder is like, I'll give you an example. Like maybe when I was like about nine years old, several policemen showed up to our apartment. Right. And I live with, I live with my parents and my three sisters and we lived in a small two-bedroom apartment so it was really crowded so these policemen showed up and they they claimed that one of the neighbors said that they saw me breaking into one of their houses so they wanted to come in and get my fingerprints and but like it, what, what didn't make sense was that they they like actually brought in their forensics unit and did like this thing in the bathroom in one of the bathrooms and they made this huge mess right but i still remember like the visual of it like wow this is like really messed up and what happened after that was uh they never came back <laughs> like like yeah. like you know they were wrong right first of all they were wrong for even yeah. come in to our house no but they wanted to get you into the system yeah. And you didn't feel like your parents probably didn't realize that they could have said no. Yeah, because, you know, well, that's one of the things when you're an immigrant, the the authorities are, are very, like, very, a very, a very frightening thing. Right. It's, you, you, you can't, you know, and my parents were here illegally. So, like, a lot of times when we were dealing with stuff like this, there was, it was almost like they couldn't do anything about it. And they knew that we couldn't do anything about it. And that's why they did it. But yeah, they never came back. And I'm pretty sure it's because obviously it wasn't me that time. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Right. But it is a way of getting you into that system. Yeah. Getting your fingerprints into the system. And so that if something in the future happens, you're already in the system, they say. Right. So, okay. So a lot of the artwork is kind of like using, using the tools of the investigator to investigate the investigator because sometimes i feel like if you're like me and you believe that these systems of authority may be biased then Mm -hmm. the tools the strategies and the trainings they use must also be biased right right yeah so from that i want to move to your am i truly free where you're using the self-portrait of you but you're also using the scannable technology medium and you've labeled your face with phrases like killer eyebrows and terrorist eyes and and it just it resonates on so many levels because your labels are things that like people would say about someone you know they'd observed like you know he just had terrorist eyes like, <laughs> right. What does that even mean, other than the fact that person is somebody you're afraid of? Right. But it's it's one of your more effective techniques of bringing out society's judgment, kind of onto your physical being. So, and I like the way your face becomes progressively less clear as the piece evolves. So, can you talk about that a little bit? 
Oh, yeah. So, yeah. And am I truly free? It, it does begin with kind of like poking fun of these stereotypical kind of like descriptions. And when photography was first invented, one of the things that they started using photographs for was to classify their criminals. And it got to the point there was people like so-called scientists that started believing that they can foretell who a criminal was simply by their biological identifier. Mm-hmm. The shape of their skull, and this was called eugenics, right? Eugenics was actually like heavily used by the Nazis, who were actually very, very impressed and motivated and inspired by the American South yes. and, the, and the slave system. Yes, like the shape of their skull, that that whole... They were very, they thought that they had it all figured out, right? This this is going to be like, we're going to use whatever they were using in, in, you know, to our system. So eugenics was like a very big kind of like Nazi thing where like they... Yeah. felt that science uh, was going to prove how superior they were to the rest of the world. And I think a lot of times, though, those things are still kind of like being used today. Oh, of course. We're still using the science. Yeah. One of the identifiers I have says uh, have a bad ombre mustache. And that's like a direct link to one of the, some of the some of the things that our last president would use right. to describe people that were coming over. Right. They're like, like those are bad, some bad ombres right there. You don't want those guys coming. Right. Over, right? Yes. Yes. But I think it's interesting that he uses Spanish. Like, it's not an it's not an English word. It speaks to how much other languages are assimilated in English and then sort of flipped around and used against the people that the languages actually originates from. Yeah, it's definitely it's like a it's like a jujitsu power move. I'm going to take a word from your language and I'm going to use it to describe you and I'm going to bring negative baggage to do that. And in that way, I'm going to assert my power over you and your language. Yeah. Yeah, it's very it's it's, it's insidious. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. You know, and a lot of people I don't I'm not sure if a lot of people know like how evil that is. Yeah, and how common. Uh, yeah, yeah, and how how very common it is to what they call the banality of evil, right? It's like yes. kind of like an everyday thing. And the banality of racism, banality of racism. Banality of racism too is so boring even almost to some people. Like uh, this is like Yeah. And so to go back to language, like it's it kind of starts off with the piece starts off with these kind of like scientific versions and it progresses further into like to the point where there's a barcode over my face which i feel is the language of commodities and then it moves on to the language of computers which is the binary code there's a binary code kind of right. overlaying they're like clear they're like clear printouts overlaid over my face and it eventually gets to the point where there's a qr code overlaid over my mm-hmm. face mm-hmm. and then it moves on to the next and all of these are kind of like uh uh, uh, stickered or uh, taped onto uh, X-ray X-ray light tables, okay. which is what that is. There, there's an X-ray, it's an X-ray light box. Got it. And at the very end, at the last, the last kind of box, I it, it it's just it's just I have fully evolved into just a, a QR code. Right. And if you were to scan that QR code with your phone, mm-hmm. it would take you to a part of the piece that exists uh, in cyberspace, and it's and it's just my criminal record. I see. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, so at the end, I always encourage people like scan the code; it works. And I was going to do that actually on my. And screen. it'll take it'll take you to my criminal record, mm-hmm. which I feel a good amount of the population would probably feel like, yeah, this is, this is more him. This is, this is who he is. This is who he's always been. This is who he's always going to be because it exists forever. It's forever. uh, You know, well, as long as the internet exists, that's going to exist. 
But human beings evolve and you have evolved way beyond what some pieces of paper or in this case code say about you. You know, that that's the beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I feel I feel the humanity is bigger. And at times we kind of marvel at like right. these technological inventions that people have have created. It counsels out like a lot of other yeah. things that maybe shouldn't shouldn't be counseled out. Yeah, it's a limited view of you. Anybody looking at that doesn't know you. That's a fact. Right. So I'm going to ask you a question that I ask all of our guests. Yeah, sure. Which is what your advice would be for someone inside or out, but our, our podcast is broadcast inside. So, you know, you're obviously speaking to both audiences. So for someone who has creative urges or, or feelings, or maybe they've even drawn some stuff What's your advice for people who are just beginning to explore their creativity and how do you keep that exploration, you know, going? I always urge people to have fun. Sometimes I feel like I see some of my fellow students. And Tense? They don't look like they're having any fun. <laughs> they're very uh, frustrated, very tense, very, very stuck on the way other people are going to perceive the artwork. <sighs> And a lot of times that gets you caught up in, in trying to assume what other people expect of you. So I always kind of just do what I, I like. It gets a little harder as, as you as you start getting professional experience. There's times when like things are expected to be a certain way. And this goes to doing tattoos too. Like when someone comes in and they want a rose and they show me a picture of it. It's like, I have to, I'm going to give them that. <laughs> that's, that's right. I would love to do like a very abstract one or a very, right. very <laughs> Pablo Picasso-esque rose, but nobody's going to ask for that. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and which would be. <laughs> I want a cubist rose. <laughs> that would be pretty awesome. That would be pretty awesome. Pretty bad. I'd be pretty badass, you know, but a lot of people probably don't ask for that. I guess I said another thing I, I would suggest or try to ask, what, what does the art want you to do? What is your art or what does your creativity want? It may be different from what you want. Because sometimes when I think about like my future, I think about like, oh yeah, you know, I'm going to be in a museum and people are going to love me. And a lot of times when I'm making artwork, I'm like, oh, this is so beautiful. I'm never going to sell it. Mm. I'm not, I don't even want people to see it. This is just for me, which I feel is probably one of the reasons why the Mona Lisa, the most famous artwork in the world is probably why it's famous is because for decades, Leonardo da Vinci just had it rolled up and he would have it under his shoulder and people would ask him, what is that? Right. It's under your business. <laughs> this is for me. Like, don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, when they finally found it, it was just like, oh, it's just a portrait of some lady. Right. Right. Exactly. And that is also art. Just because you make it for yourself does not mean it's not art. Everything you do does not have to be observed by somebody other than you. <laughs> but yeah, really ask yourself, like, what does your creativity want from you? What does it want you to do? Because a lot of times right. I feel that people think like they they are their creativity, but I don't think so. I think it, it exists kind of like right. apart from your other interests and right. ambitions. <laughs> because, uh, and you know, I th and I think about the times when I had to be creative just so I can live more comfortably. You know, so a lot of times your cre your creativity just kicks in without you even wanting it to. So it is it is something I feel that may be existing apart from the rest of your conscious. <laughs> That's too deep. Huh? <laughs> no, no, that is perfectly. It's it. 
really resonates. Thank you so much. And I want to thank you so, so, so very much. Um, this has been an amazing conversation. We've I feel like we just kind of ran the gamut. Yeah, I think we. I, I think it was a little short, but it's like an hour. We went for an hour, so you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're almost coming up on an hour. <laughs> I know. I can talk about. I can talk about art and surveillance all day. <laughs> but, um, but thank you, Berto. We're we're gonna put links to your site on our social media, so people who have internet access can definitely check it out and. Uh, I look forward to seeing your work out and about in the art world. All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to an episode of Outside Inside Radio, brought to you by the Prison Arts Collective. Prison Arts Collective is founded on the belief that art is a human right and is dedicated to bringing the transformative power of the arts to people experiencing incarceration. We are based in the School of Art and Design at San Diego State University and have additional chapters at Cal Poly Humboldt and at three CSU campuses, San Bernardino, Fresno, and Fullerton. Prison Arts Collective is a project of California Arts and Corrections, an initiative of the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Outside Inside Productions are a way to communicate with our participants and with the wider public through video and other media as an extension of our distance learning project created in response to COVID-19. Thank you for listening and tune in next week for another episode of Outside Inside Radio.